Hello and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects, connecting you to the world of investing and helping you stay ahead. In this episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange, host Etienne Jeanca Bouchard welcomes reoccurring guest Cameron Chamberlain to the show. Cameron is a portfolio strategist at Fidelity Investments Canada, and the focus of today's conversation is around ETF industry trends and their impact on portfolio construction. Some of the key topics discussed include the increase in popularity of cash alternative ETFs as a replacement for fixed income, also duration management in fixed income, understanding that not all dividend ETFs are built the same, and many more. This podcast was recorded on April 3rd, 2023. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect those of Fidelity Investments Canada ULC or its affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be construed as investment, tax, or legal advice. It is not an offer to sell or buy, or an endorsement, recommendation, or sponsorship of any entity or security cited. Read a fund's prospectus before investing. Funds are not guaranteed. Their values change frequently and past performance may not be repeated. Fees, expenses, and commissions are all associated with fund investments. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Fidelity ETF Exchange. I'm your host, Etienne Jean-Cabouchard, a.k.a. EJB, and I'm very glad to be back with you for another episode of the Fidelity ETF Exchange. We've got a great episode lined up today with a recurring guest, which I will introduce in uh, a, a few moments. But as I usually do, just a quick recap of our of our last episodes, which... Uh, was actually a really fun one to record because we had done it in a live studio with one of our uh, partners on the portfolio management side, uh, David Tolk, who manages uh, a bunch of our asset allocation mandates as well as some other individual funds here at Fidelity. So we had a conversation around portfolio construction, how they incorporate ETFs into these multi-asset solutions and just a bunch of other stuff. So if you're interested in in listening to that, recapping it, it is available on www.fidelity.ca uh, or it is available on your favorite podcast app. So check that out if you'd uh, like to recap it. All right, let's get to today's episode. Uh, as I mentioned, we have a recurring guest joining us. Uh, that is my colleague and friend Cameron Chamberlain, who is a portfolio strategist here at Fidelity, a man that wears many hats, uh, works with all of our sales teams across the countries with hundreds, if not thousands of advisors also to provide insights on risks in portfolios, how to optimize certain allocations, basically our in-house portfolio guru. Uh, Cam, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me back on. Excited to be here. Yeah, this is awesome. So last year, we actually had the chance to do two episodes together, one that was more centered around uh, you know, managing the equity portion of portfolios. Uh, the second time we talked about fixed income, which obviously it was, was a tremendous challenge for investors last year. Um, but today, you know, instead of focusing on, an, on a particular asset class, I just want to get your feedback on, because as I mentioned, you work with advisors across the country. Get your feedback on some of the trends that we've identified uh, on the ETF side and, you know, obviously relates to the fund side also and to see, are you kind of seeing the same thing? What are some things that you're seeing that we might have not picked up? Um, and, and kind of revolve the conversation around that. So more maybe 
uh, timely, if you will, and maybe less evergreen where we could, you know, this this might run its course over three months because who knows, we'll, we'll step back on the podcast in three, six months and maybe some of this will be less relevant. But, uh, you know, at least this will be timely for our investors and advisors listening in to get uh, your perspectives. Um, so I guess, you know, just to, to kick it off, Cam, uh, last year we saw... 9 billion in inflows into cash alternatives ETFs. And I think as a whole, this this very low duration, you know, higher yielding now cash type accounts have become just very popular, whether that's money market funds on the fund side, or in this case, high interest savings ETFs in the ETF industry. Is that something that's come up in a lot of your conversations? and, And how have you navigated that new reality where you can actually get, you know, paid to own cash? Yeah, certainly we see them and for a variety of different cha- reasons and that can be challenging or rewarding depending on really what the reason is that you own them. Mm-hmm. If you're looking to buy a house in six months or 12 months, something like that, then yeah, that's a great place. You can park your capital, earn a, a safe, pretty well, depending on the product, guaranteed rate. Uh, that's more attractive than what you just get in a high interest savings account today. So certainly you see them and I think that there are a couple of reasons why they're great to own. Uh, there's also, I think, this uh, natural trend, I think, among investors to say the market's been pretty poor in 2022. Mm-hmm. What was the low risk part of my portfolio and fixed income was not low risk in absolute terms last year. And as a result, you know, I'll just take the guaranteed money and, and walk away. And I think that can be fine in small a portion of your portfolio, perhaps if you're planning based on kind of goal oriented uh, outcomes, then fantastic. The risk that you run is if you lock yourself into a rate over a five-year period, let's say, and then there's another opportunity in the market that you'd like to take advantage of and you can't for one Mm -hmm. reason or another. So if you're using GICs, they're locked in, uh, you see a buying opportunity in equities, uh, that's not really there for you. Uh, I think about portfolio outcomes in certain environments and certainly in high stress uh, scenarios that are not necessarily interest rate led like we saw in 2022, but are more run-of-the-mill economic driven equity market sell-offs. You typically see high quality investment grade bonds actually provide uh, capital gain opportunities and actually appreciated mm-hmm. value in those environments. And if that's the part of your portfolio that you're going and kind of locking in a rate, you're not gonna see any kind of capital gain in that type of scenario to offset a capital loss potentially elsewhere in your portfolio. So it's just a risk that you have to be aware of and manage. And, and that's why to me, you, know, you can see these high rates on GICs, uh, high interest savings accounts or or, uh, HISA ETFs and say, great, they have a place in my portfolio. And in many cases they do. Uh, The challenge that you run into is when you think about the actual scenarios you come across in the market, they may not provide that same level of protection as the assets that you used to own that you kind of funded those trades with. So Mm -hmm. there is a balancing act going on. And uh, just as you see it in the ETF space, you see it in the fund space as well. Uh, and it's an important area because it can lead to some somewhat unintended consequences in certain market environments as well. So that's a very good point. And one I think that we don't discuss enough is kind of the opportunity cost, right? And I think you alluded very well to it with regards to per- potentially buying back equities if we have a drawdown there and having, you know, yes, you want that to have cash on the sidelines, but sometimes, you know, the sell- selling is easier than deciding when to buy which I think a lot of investors and advisors are, you know, thinking, yeah, let, let's keep this cash for now. There's still vol- we're still seeing volatility in the markets as much on the bond side as on the equity side, because, you know, as much as we'd like to see rate hikes ending, it feels like we're maybe at least in a status quo for, for the foreseeable future. 
But it does lead to a question where it's, you know, when when do you redeploy that capital? And have you started to see, you know, that change? Or is it, are we not even close to the end where it's, you know, you're seeing it, you know, people that you're working with, advisors or investors that are, you know, ready to start pulling the trigger? Is it still more in accumulation of cash mode or is it starting to deploy that cash? Well, I think it depends on what part of the market you're thinking about. So That's true. I think for a lot of individuals who maybe raised cash and use kind of histotype products um, in the latter part of 2022, first of all, that's a great trade. If you pulled the trigger early enough and and made that allocation while rates were still rapidly rising and um, you were early in 2022, you know, you've done a really good job of protecting some capital in a, an environment where having more interest rate exposure was generally a net negative. Mm-hmm. Um, I think what happened actually in the month of March with uh, these challenges around U.S. regional banks in particular is you start to see those correlations between stocks and bonds flip net negative again. And I think it's not to say that that's going to continue and going to be a long-term trend over the next number of months because you know we don't know what we don't know. But I think it's a good wake-up call to say, to some extent, if your fixed income side of your portfolio didn't protect you like you thought that it would in what was you know a more run-of-the-mill like market drawdown um, and volatility event, then we have seen some people start to redeploy that capital, not necessarily into equity markets, but into some slightly longer duration boring bond products because there was that opportunity there to say, I, I need to get a little bit more of that exposure back in my portfolio. Mm-hmm. And I didn't get the overall portfolio downside protection, perhaps, that you traditionally were looking for. And it's not that you lost money uh, by holding a HISA during that environment. It's just that you didn't get the capital gain that came with a uh, move mm-hmm. down in the US tenure from 4% to 3.5%, for example. Yeah, uh, That was really driven by that event. And it's it's difficult because you can't necessarily always see the event coming that would require you to go and add duration back and balance out your portfolio. And that's why you want to more systematically try to review and make sure if you kind of set yourself a, a strategic asset mix long term that you stick to it, except for the cyclical or tactical changes that you want to make. But you don't necessarily want to fundamentally move away from that asset allocation for a very short period of time, if you are saying to yourself at some point, oh, I'll go back and, and get back to my traditional yeah. 60-40. Because that decision point is very, very difficult because no one's going to get it right. So you have to accept yeah. the fact that you're probably going to get it wrong and you're just trying to kind of minimize the negative impact along the way. So that, that's a great point, right? It's it's like there's no real perfect time or nobody knows when it's exactly the perfect time, but there's better times and there's worse times. And I think over the past six, let's say six, eight months, it, it was starting to be fairly clear that, you know, this where, where yields were in Canada, in the U.S., at some point, bonds were going to be fairly attractive. And actually, to follow up on kind of that cash alternative conversation and say, eventually, that will likely be deployed in, in fixed income first. Anyways, you would think unless you're going really from the no risk, no volatility spectrum until into equities, which would be the higher risk spectrum, there's probably some middle ground there. But what we've seen so far this year from an ETF perspective in Canada, if you've seen long-term bond mandates be positive around 405 million and short-term bond mandates uh, have about 1 billion in outflows. So about a 1.5 billion relative increase, if you will, to uh, longer uh, duration type solutions, which is telling us that, you know, there is starting to be an appetite for interest rate sensitivity to maybe recoup faster a little bit, if you will, what you lost in a very tough 2022. Is that something that you're seeing 
also coming up now is like, cause we were talking about maybe just that hedge for, from a vol standpoint, but now trying to maybe let, let's get it, let's get it back a little bit quicker and, uh, and, and benefit from that or, you know, yeah, you see it too for soon sure. to be talking about that. Yeah. Yeah. You, you see it, you see it. Um, at the end of the day, yes, the cash alternative was one solution to the challenge that was 2022. And that was a trade that we saw made. Um, we saw a lot of trading from long duration, high quality strategies into more kind of short duration and credit focused exposures. So high, high yield, floating rate loans, kind mm-hmm. of corporate bonds, trying to kick the government bond exposure that's just really trading on rates um, out of the picture as best as possible. Mm-hmm. So throughout 2022, you saw that trade go one way. The challenge with that is a lot of those more short duration credit products, they're not behaving like your traditional bonds. And in fact, you get higher correlations with equity exposure and equity markets uh, by making that type of adjustment. So part of what you've seen this year is just, I think, a getting back to normal, to so to speak, of a lot of those uh, individuals who made that short duration trade last year are unwinding it this year, Uh, not because they don't necessarily see an area or opportunity in the short duration space, but they got away from that core portfolio construction that they were looking for out of their bond side of their portfolio. So yes, you see that across certainly the ETF landscape, the fund landscape as well. Just again, that reintroducing of higher quality, longer duration bond exposure. That, that, I think that that makes sense. Also, in 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 to the I don't know how to to phrase this exactly, but it feels like you know over the past, you know, we I've been doing this for five years now. Cam, you've been you've been doing it even longer than I have. You know, it's very rare that when we're we're just you know talking with advisors and going under the hood, if you will, of the of the fixed income sleeve. That you're that you find longer duration than say benchmark, right? I feel like it's it's always been historically we've been shorter duration to minimize maybe sensitivity a little bit, but in reality, take away 2022 and 2021 to a certain extent, it'd probably have been better served having longer duration than shorter duration. I don't know what it would take to flip the switch on that, or maybe we just never will because we're in a framework where it's more about managing volatility than trying to optimize performance. Right, because that's what we're trying to do on the equity side. Try, that's where you're trying to get the, the juicy returns, and then you're trying to protect the capital with bonds. Could that flip at one point, or we? Just, am I going crazy here? That you know, um, there's no way it ever happened that we have longer average durations than say the benchmark. Yeah, I think it, part of the challenge here is the way that we think about benchmarking duration. Is that if you just look at investment grade bond indices in Canada, the U.S. globally. Uh, you're seeing pretty long durations, like six and a half, seven, Mm -hmm. eight year duration. And that's a lot longer than it used to be. And so I think to some extent, we got to think about kind of whether you're overweight or underweight duration in a slightly different way, because I think that you're not necessarily going to see people saying, yeah, my baseline duration now is nine or 10 years. That's pretty far out the spectrum. (laughs) Uh, But if you think of like yourself relative to your peers, like if you think about the average investor, the average advisor, if you're managing duration at like five years, let's say, and you've got some that are shorter and some that are longer, if you're up at five and a half, six years, to some extent, you might be longer duration relative to your peers. That's and true. when you think about kind of that that type of behavior and what that can lead to, it's that taking on a little more risk might let you stand a little bit ahead of, of some of your colleagues, uh, some of your, your friends, your family members, whatever it may be. Uh, and so if you think about benchmarking slightly differently, then I would argue that you do start to see some people now that are overweight duration, even if it's not relative to those traditional indexes. 
That's that's a very good point, right? Because we often look at those benchmarks, but they have changed tr- so dramatically over the past 10 years because of new issuances, right? It, a, a benchmark or an index is dependent on issuance patterns. If companies and governments are issuing longer term bonds, the duration will go up. And just, I guess, little asterisk for, for anybody listening in that might be like, what the heck is duration exactly? It is the, the sensitivity of a bond mandate to moves in interest rates. So the higher it is, the more sensitive, the lower, generally the less sensitive. Obviously, that's a very gener- very big generalization, but that's pretty much the, the gist of it. So thought I'd mention that. Let's maybe move on away fr- from, from the fixed income side, which you know hopefully we didn't put anyone to sleep <laughs> that's listening to the podcast quite yet because we've got some good stuff coming up. Uh, another thing that I want to talk to you about, Cam, is uh, ESG and I feel like ESG was the hottest topic, you know, from 2019 to 2020, even 20, maybe before that, probably. But in Canada, let's say it's really picked up in like 2018, 2019, and then took a little bit of a backseat last year, especially from a performance standpoint, because a lot of those uh, either like climate leadership type uh, mandates or environmentally focused or however you want to categorize them, but definitely with some ESG characteristics or environment, social and governance tend to have a bit more uh, sensitivity also because it is a little bit more growthy, right? There's more tech companies generally, maybe a bit more communication services slash internet companies uh, because of they have generally a lesser uh, environmental impact. We've seen no outflows. How, what, what would you attribute to, to that? Is it a stickiness with regards to the process? Is it, you know, kind of buying the dip or, you know, how, how do you see that uh, reality, I guess, if, with the ES, ESG mandates, funds, ETFs? I think ESG in general, I think of as uh, a little bit more of a strategic allocation. And at least the, the individuals that I have conversations with, mostly advisors that I have conversations with that are trying to build ESG into portfolios more holistically, this isn't necessarily an area they're looking to trade. Uh, this isn't, uh, you know, Okay, the factor is that is ESG to some extent is is working well or I expect it to work well. So now I'm going to allocate to it and then I'm going to sell it off. Mm-hmm. So you're trying to fundamentally build portfolios that have long term strategic allocations or overlays to ESG if you're choosing to use it or consider it as an allocation at all. So to some extent, I think that's probably why you haven't seen you know a massive uh, outflow from that space, where despite the fact it's been more challenged from a performance perspective is that if you break down portfolio construction in a few ways, I think of it as, first of all, what's your long-term strategic allocation? And that really shouldn't change all that much. Is there a cyclical allocation or tilt to your portfolio that you want to add based on where we are in the business cycle and and something that's a little more, not necessarily long-term, but more Mm midterm nature oriented? And then there's the tactical trading. And that's where you ideally have active managers or have individuals with expertise in, in active management that are providing that kind of very short-term tactical overlay into your portfolio. Mm -hmm. And I see ESG being integrated strategically. So it's stickier money because if you have that kind of focus for any investor and you believe that ESG is the, you know, the right place to go with your money, if that's your stance, then if you see some underperformance over 18 months, it's probably not changing your mindset. Mm -hmm as to where you want to invest your dollars at the end of the day. And, and so I think that's probably why. And increasingly, we see more and more individuals at thinking about incorporating ESG as a, a portion of a portfolio, even if it's not an overlay to the entire uh, model mm-hmm. or their entire investment portfolio. 
Uh, and I, I don't think that's necessarily a trend that's about to unwind itself. Uh, I think if anything, it probably continues to grow, but it's just, I think a little different to everybody. And that's the challenge for some, it might be, just be, I mean, think about the equity portion of my portfolio and are not thinking about ESG and fixed income. Others want to take a more holistic approach and think about both. And then I have conversations with advisors that think about offering their clients choice, a portfolio that's ESG focused and portfolios that don't have that area of emphasis as well. And so it's just depends on kind of what you're really looking for. Uh, But I I think that's why it's stickier. No, that that makes a ton of sense, right? Like if you're strategically building portfolios with uh, an ESG conscious, if you will, for sure, then it's not going to be ins and outs and trades like you would with a sector, like a sector type strategies or even factor strategies where they tend to be very cyclical. Um, so that that's a that's a really good point. Um, another focus, not not an area of focus, but another category, if you will, of equities that I think is getting a bit more attention this year, particularly, is uh, the international side. So anything non North America. So whether that's emerging markets, whether that's Europe, whether that's uh, international developed, which would also include areas like Japan and Australia, um, obviously was was quite a challenge last year with, you know, whether it's geopolitics, uh, you know, you had the whole aspect of, you know, uh, high inflation for the first time, in a very long time, like we did here also, but probably to an extent that uh, on a relative basis was more severe with, you know, gas prices and energy prices and things like that. It just seemed almost uninvestable from a North American standpoint. But you've seen that somewhat take a turn where maybe a lot of the bad news was priced in and it just was tough to get worse. Uh, And you saw performance, obviously, saying like on an MSCI IFI index, which is international developed, really pick up starting around November. And now all of a sudden you're seeing a lot more flows start to go there. We're at about one point two billion year to date. Uh, So the very close to Canada in terms of the highest uh, region in terms of equity flows, what would you attribute that to? Is that maybe an area that just was just underinvested and now maybe it's getting a little bit of love from a diversification standpoint? Or is it more of a tactical trade of like, this is trading at a sizable discount. There's a reason for that. But now maybe the discount is big enough where it makes sense for me to, to trade this. Yeah, I think it's, pro- it's probably a little bit of both, maybe more of the former in my experience. So I one of the biggest biases or gaps that I guess in this case that I would see is that uh, portfolios are coming through that are like very, very North American focused and North American Mm -hmm. equity focused in particular. Um, I have less of a challenge thinking about international markets on the fixed income side, because generally speaking, the the return opportunity, if you're looking at investment grade bonds in Canada, the US and internationally is fairly similar. And there's just a smaller deviation between all those markets. Uh, yeah. On the equity side, it can be much larger. So we've seen portfolios consistently carrying 90% plus exposure to Canada and the US, very, very small exposures to international markets. Uh, lots of headlines last year about emerging markets in China in particular being uninvestable. Yeah. So there's really just this multi-year period. And it's been a decade plus where you've seen essentially the US dominate the rest of the world. And then in 2022, where the US underperformed, you saw Canada step up and provide that kind of diversification. And as you know, Canadians, that's great that you've been able to fall back on that kind of Canada-US trade. The challenge is, though, of course, that when you get these two economies in similar places in the economic cycle, that the risk of kind of correlations going yeah. towards one in periods of stress just grows. 
And so I think you've seen a lot of individuals say, okay, we finally got a return opportunity in international markets, even though I love think a lot of these flows have come in after yeah. the kind of reversal from a performance perspective to say it's not just a risk management tool because that, that story has always been there, but there may be a return opportunity in some of those international markets that warrants kind of that shift back to a, a more neutral global stance at the very least. I don't think there are too many people that are yet going overweight to that kind of international yeah, no, market. I don't think so. <laughs> uh, certainly relative to indices, yeah. but relative to peers, you might start to see a few that say, you know, this is the time and I'm going to get away from that 85% Canadian US exposure and I'm going to build in a 20, 25, 30% international sleeve into the equity side of my portfolio. And, and that is a differentiator uh, relative mm-hmm. to a lot of peers. So I think it's more so reversing the trend that we've seen over, frankly, the last decade, because there's really been nowhere else to be other than really the U.S., but then more broadly, North America. Uh, And I think that's a trend that likely continues as long as you see these like, again, to some extent, some of the performance trend continue. And we can talk about whether whether that's a likely scenario or not. But I do think it's an area that a lot of investors are reconsidering uh, more meaningfully for the first time in some cases in years. Yeah, no, that's such a good point, right? Because it feels like you, you don't you don't change it. You know what? What's the the saying now? My French is coming back to me. But like, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. That's right. Uh, that's that's pretty. That's pretty good, right? Okay, good. Um, <laughs> the last ten years really has been a U.S. or well, I guess you know twelve years to a certain extent. Pretty much since the European banking crisis in two thousand eleven, two thousand twelve ish. Uh, North America, especially the U.S., has dominated, but. The next decade may not necessarily look like the last decade, hence why the diversification of the portfolios, you want to do that when things are going well, not when things aren't going well. And I think, uh, you know, if you look at the decade before that, you would have said the opposite. I remember talking with some of our colleagues that have been here for like for, for 20 plus years at Fidelity and saying just how crazy they sounded in 2009 saying buy the US because for the last 10 years, starting in 2009, you basically got 0% return on the S&P 500 if you consider the 2000 tech bubble and you consider the Great Recession. So it was almost crazy to start talking about the U.S. will be the place to be. And, you know, little did you know that was where growth was. That's where we had some of the best tech names come out and et cetera, et cetera. So I think from an advisor and investor standpoint, just because something hasn't worked doesn't mean it doesn't make sense, I think, in a portfolio framework. Um, So little maybe words of wisdom there. So what if scenarios, that's what I focus on all the time is what is one thing to ask? Yeah. What if you're wrong? What if the future is different from the past? Are you insulated against all these different types of events? And I think in the case of just geographic positioning, it's important to ask yourself, what if? And then you can think about it if you're getting into the weeds, your position sizing. You know, if you're 90 percent North America, 10 percent international today, well, okay, what if you're wrong? What if there's a really big difference there in relative performance in any given environment? Uh, are you maybe a little more focused or more biased in North America than you thought? Should that maybe still be a an, an 80% allocation instead of a 90% allocation? That still tilts you dramatically towards North America. But then if you're wrong, the, the gap will be a little bit less severe. Yeah. So it is those what if scenarios that are always important to come back to. That's, that's really good points there. Uh, Cam, you know, we're we're already at, let's say, 25 minutes here. I've got a few questions left, and I always try to keep it under 30, but th- there's two things I definitely want to touch on. So we'll try to get through them a little bit quicker. Um, dividend factor ETFs. And this is one that comes up often because 
everybody in Canada loves dividends. Like that's the thing that's been ingrained in our brains for so long. It feels like that, you know, to, and it is true though, like total returns you have, yes, you have your price appreciation, you have your dip, you know, your, your, uh, your income that's distributed, that you reinvest. The, the, the reality is not all dividend strategies are built the same. And I think there's a lot of, um, unintended, um, not misinformation, but maybe biases, if you will, like you're buying, you think you're buying a yield mandate, but in reality, you're buying a dividend growth mandate. How can investors and advisors kind of, you know, sift through the, 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 the fog here, if you will, try to find what they're actually looking for, because it feels like it's fairly challenging. And we're both working in this industry and we get caught in this trap sometimes too. Yeah, I think it's really important with dividend mandates in particular, but any really, to always ask yourself why. So if you're looking for top performing dividend funds over the last five or 10 years, and you see a couple of mandates that are like leaps and bounds ahead of the rest, ask yourself why they were able to outperform by so much in an environment where like dividend uh, yield and low vol kind of blue chip stocks generally underperformed or higher vol growth oriented mandates. Mm -hmm. So if you start asking yourself why and trying to dig into the weeds of the strategy of the style of the mandate, I think what you'll generally find is that uh, dividend products generally end up in three broad buckets. You get on one end of the spectrum, dividend growth oriented mandates that might not even pay a dividend yield. So there's a metric that you can actually look at. Are the stocks that are owned paying dividends? If they're generally not, or that dividend yield is lower than whatever broad market it is, whether it's the TSX for Canada, the S&P 500 for the US, that's an initial warning sign that that is probably not a true like dividend paying income oriented mandate. So that's okay. Just don't think of it as that income sleeve in your portfolio. Then you're going to get kind of a more bl low vol blue chip dividend strategy that's generally going to pay a yield, likely above whatever that benchmark area or region would be, but generally still be lower volatility. So more traditional, large dividend payers, established companies, uh, more stable earnings, most likely. And as a result, they might have exhibited uh, lower drawdowns historically. So you can just look at historical drawdowns. If it's been a bit of a smoother ride through years like 2022, that's maybe an indication that you've then got yourself kind of a more total return oriented, low vol blue chip dividend strategy. And then the other end of the spectrum is dividend yield mandates. That's where you got companies that are paying very high dividend yields for one, one reason or another within their business that are really income oriented first and foremost. You're generally not gonna get that same low volatility behavior over time uh, because there's usually a reason why a company's dividend yield is elevated. So those are the best if you're trying to just search for yield, but then can come with greater drawdowns in, in market mm -hmm. environments where something breaks, for instance. So it's across those three buckets and whether I would say start by looking at the dividend yield tied to the products that you're thinking about Look at their volatility, their standard deviation, their performance in historical drawdowns. Uh, and then if you've got those higher uh, actual uh, income oriented strategies, higher dividend yields, all three of those have a different place to play from a portfolio construction perspective because the correlations and overlap that you can get from the other maybe value or low vol or growth oriented mandates in a portfolio is going to be quite different depending on the dividend strategy that you select to use. That's, that's great comments. And I think you know, like you said, it's just there's so much so much choice out there now for for investors and advisors. It's such a challenge to find exactly what you're looking for. I think there's there's more ETFs listed on the TSX than there there are stocks. So that gives you an idea of that's just ETFs. It's not considering funds. It's not considering you know all these other tools that are available to you. So 
some, some, some good comments there with regards to specific factor exposures, in this case, uh, dividend. Last question for you, Cam, and this is a little bit different than the rest of the stuff we've talked about because, you know, we're talking about trends, categories of in focus, certain situations with regards to diversification in terms of geography, factors, etc. Here, we're going to talk about time and time horizons. And when you're having conversations with, with, you know, advisors and investors, just how important is time? Like, what is the amount of time that you're looking to the, the, the time horizon from an investment standpoint come into play when constructing a portfolio? It's something that we almost not, not necessarily not talk about, but we almost always look at risk profile and risk, risk tolerance when in reality, all that should be tied to time. Correct. So kind of just your, your comments on that and we'll wrap it up with that. Maybe some last words, but I'd like to get your opinion on that. Absolutely. I, I think it's critical uh, to your goal and the way that you set up and structure your portfolio is not just risk tolerance, it's risk capacity. Like how much risk can you actually afford to take on uh, depending on the, the the time horizon that you're investing for? Is your goal long term oriented somewhere in the medium term, short term oriented, very, very different portfolios uh likely better suited for you, depending on that time horizon that you're thinking about. I think I think about this in two ways. I think about the time horizon as certainly trying to determine your asset allocation more broadly. How much risk can you afford to and, and are you comfortable with taking on just in general? And then I think about time horizon again within any given portfolio. And I bring it back to kind of what I mentioned earlier around strategic, cyclical, and tactical tilts. At the end of the day, you want to avoid making mistakes on a strategic level. Determine what broad approach works for you over the next 10 to 30 years within your portfolio. What what market regime are we in today? And then think about how you want to set your portfolio up in that that light. If you're in a long-term secular bull market, you generally want to own equities. So make sure your strategic mix has that equity exposure in it. And then only from a cyclical standpoint, think about maybe underweighting equities slightly or overweighting equities based on where you are in a business cycle. So that you've mm-hmm. still got that long-term strategic allocation taken care of within any portfolio, whether your neutral mix is a 60-40 or an 80-20 or a 40-60, but making sure you've still got that net equity exposure and then maybe you're slightly underweight because we're you expect us to be going into a recessionary environment. So maybe you want to bring down that equity exposure a little bit. Maybe you want to bring in factor exposures within the equity portion of your portfolio because of that cyclical mm-hmm. trend in the market as well. And then the last piece would be more so from a a tactical standpoint. That's more short-term oriented. Maybe those periods last kind of one to 12 months where there's a a pricing dislocation in a certain area in the market that you're thinking about trying to trade uh, more aggressively and on a shorter term basis. So that kind of additional position should not overwhelmingly change your strategic allocation or your more cyclical setup on a slightly shorter time horizon either, because that's going to be a trade that's going to have to reverse itself at some point in the near term. So whether you're making that trade yourself or trusting an active manager in order to do that for you, kind of the time horizon, I think, comes into play within your broader asset allocation as well, not just determining your overall asset allocation. So I think it's just another area to kind of think about to make sure that you're not deviating too much from whatever that goal is for your investment portfolio and thinking about that strategic allocation and the market backdrop that maybe plays out over 10 to 30 years that kind of business cycle behavior that maybe plays out over the next one to to five or 10 years. And then those more tactical short-term elements that maybe you want to think about, or maybe you just say, I don't need to think about this. I can trust somebody else to make those decisions for me. 
Uh, and in those cases, you know, you avoid those like one to 12 month yeah. tactical trades as well. That makes a lot of sense. So I guess the, the, the takeaway there is set an objective, you know, construct your portfolio around that objective, understand what your uh, what volatility you can digest, but understand the time period it's going to take you to get to that goal, which is, I think, great advice, Cam. We're going to wrap it up with that. Thank you so much for, for joining us. It's always a pleasure. We're going to be happy to have you back on in the future. And to all of our listeners, thank you so much for, for, for trusting us with this 30 minutes of ETF talks, industry talk, investment talk. Uh, we really appreciate it. And we'll see you soon. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Fidelity ETF Exchange, powered by Fidelity Connects. Don't forget to follow Fidelity Canada on Twitter and subscribe to Fidelity Connects on your podcast platform of choice. And if you like what you're hearing, please leave a five-star rating or review. Thanks again. See you next time.